session two, uh, the biblical versus the Western worldview. So when you start to talk about theology and talk about God and talk about uh, redemptive history, etc., etc., uh, you end up just bumping around, fumbling around, unless you deal with the issue of worldview, which is really the elephant in the center of the room. And uh, the you get a lot of talk, and there's been a lot of writing on worldview. Uh, the pain of most of it is that most of it assumes a a worldview that's not biblical, and they don't hit the 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 core point it's not really the core point it's like the outer shell of the house they point out like different pieces of furniture in different rooms but they don't point out the the structure the overall structure of the house concerning worldview and so uh so worldview the primary aspect of all worldviews whether it be uh, modern naturalist worldview, or supernaturalist, or uh, Hindu, or Buddhist, or uh, or Taoist, uh, or whatever, whatever is the question of what is the sum total of reality, and this is the primary component of all worldviews, and so the sum total of reality, like if we just talk about what makes up life and existence as a whole. That's what we're talking about. The technical term for this is called uh, metaphysics, or what about physics, or about what exists. And so when we talk about worldview, the question is, what is it that exists? What is the overall playing field for all of the characters involved? God, angels, demons, humans, etc. Like, what, what is the... What's the, what's the field, what's the playing field look like within which all of these characters are playing? Because if you're trying to talk about, you know, Michael Jordan, you, you can't really talk about who Michael Jordan is unless it's, if you give the framework for what is basketball and this is what the basketball court is like and et cetera, et cetera, then you can start to talk about Mr. Jordan, and so likewise, you can start to theologize and talk about God, but if you don't have the, the court within which God and human beings are playing, then you end up skewing who God is and his character and how he relates and how things, how the game is unfolding, so to say. And so, the primary issue of worldview is one's metaphysics, or what is the sum total of reality? And so the Bible describes this as the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the heavens and the earth are the playing field within which God and human being and human beings and angels, etc., play. Within different worldviews, like Hinduism, the sum total of reality is Brahman, the kind of impersonal matrix of reality that everything is birthed out of and then dissolves back into and is reincarnated out of, etc. And that's kind of the assumption of, of uh, Buddhism. Buddhism's kind of chameleon in its, in its application, but originally. And uh, then like Taoism is the, the Wanwu or the 10,000 things, the conglomeration of, of the different things made up by the yin and the yang. And then within like naturalism the sum total of reality is nature is is materiality and then everything functions and plays out within nature and then you will which we'll talk about later the uh, uh, the majority of the world is uh, is some sort of platonic view of the sum total of reality is material and immaterial we'll get to there in a second so we'll present the uh, biblical worldview within uh, your structure of the house, so to say, or within the basketball court. Uh, you have, let's use a different one as a beginning and the end. I don't know, a track or a football, a football field. So within a football field, you have kind of the beginning at the zero yard line and the end at the other uh, uh, touchdown. And so 
you have the beginning of things and the end of things. And the technical terms for these are cosmogony and eschatology, the studying of the study of the genesis of the cosmos and the study of the end of all things. And all worldviews have an understanding of what all things are, how it was in the beginning, and how it will be in the end. And that can cycle, that can that can be stagnant, that can be up or down. The Christian worldview is like a big arrow from beginning creation to the end, the day of the Lord. And uh, uh, but they all have the same. And it's really we human beings create worldviews, whatever worldview they create uh, that is not truth. Number one, they do it to ultimately to avoid judgment. The human beings have perverted reality over the last 6,000 years to avoid judgment so as not to really give an account for their lives or to lessen uh, judgment. But they they develop these worldviews and pervert truth. Uh, But it's always based on time and therefore generally your understanding of how things are going to get fixed in the end is based on how things were in the beginning. Some worldviews aren't like that. You have you know, some New Age worldviews and stuff in which time isn't uh, really taken as reality. And, but nobody really follows that because it just doesn't line up with how life is. And so um, I feel like I'm talking kind of theoretically where I can't lay out different worldviews and such, so I'm just not going to. I'm going to move on. So um, so within that, your, your view of the beginning really defines your view of the end, and that defines your understanding of what salvation is, how things are going to get fixed, because these are the major questions of life. You know, who is God? How did things come about? What is the meaning of everything? Where is everything going? Who am I in relation to that? How do I relate to that, etc.? And so all worldviews ultimately try to answer these questions, and they create systems of thought by establishing this is how everything was in the beginning, this is where it's going, this is how it went wrong, and this is how it's going to get fixed. And they have various different ways of doing that. So, um, to start out, the biblical worldview will just, today we'll just deal with the metaphysics, or this, this session, I mean, we'll just deal with the metaphysics. What is, what is the uh, sum total of reality? What are the all things? And so, um, because the biblical worldview is that all of those things will be restored in the end, the restoration of all things as they were in the beginning. So, the biblical worldview, the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I found, the reason I make such a big deal about Genesis 1-1 is that I found that if you're trying to uh, get clear on truth, you really can't do it unless you deal with Genesis 1-1. And so, um, there's various different theories about how uh, the Hebraic, what the Hebraic worldview uh, was and how it was composed. And uh, does anybody have a watch by chance? I'm disoriented. I need to know when I can I borrow that. Do you mind? Just so I know where I'm going. All right. So um, the uh, the heavens and the earth. The heavens are. Uh, the Bible describes as an expanse as an expanse that God stretched out, and so it's an expanse amidst the waters. Genesis one. In the beginning, God created the heavens. The heavens are always plural in the Old Testament, except for six times, which we'll get to those. But it's always plural. Uh, so there's more than one heavens, and so you get, strangely throughout the Old Testament, you get arbitrary translations of translating it in the singular versus the plural. So God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form of void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, so then God says, let there be light in the midst of the waters, 
which the Spirit is hovering over. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, a rakia, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse the heavens. Plural. Um, and so the generally how historically how people have interpreted this framework is a uh, poor uh, translation of uh, the Hebrew the Hebrew word for expanse into the Latin firmamentum and uh, because the idea of uh, I won't go into the, why it got translated that way, but I, I put a picture on the front page there of this is kind of generally how scholars have interpreted the Hebraic worldview, that it's this flat earth with a dome, a solid dome firmament that has kind of the images of the sun and the moon and the stars that kind of rotate across it. And then there's waters above the expanse from the waters below the firmament or the expanse and then God exists above those waters which is clearly not how the scripture portrays it but this is generally how and it's usually done in a fairly condescending way that uh, it was kind of a primitive worldview a primitive way of viewing reality so if you flip over to page two the, that expanse, or the heavens, are stretched. And so, thus says the Lord, the God who created the heavens, the Shamayim, and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what, what comes from it and gives breath to the people on it, spirit to those who walk in it. Psalm 104, Blesses the Lord, Bless the Lord, O my soul, you're clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment. If you read Psalm 104, it's, it's clearly just a re- a rehashing of redemptive history from Genesis 1-1 on. And so he says, you covered yourself with light as a garment on, on day one, stretching out the heavens like a tent on day two. And the idea of a tent is that you live within the tent. That's where you dwell. And so he lays the beams or the rafters uh, of his chambers, and it's the upper chambers, he lays the beams of his rafters in the waters or on the waters and makes the clouds his chariot. And so the whereas generally it's interpreted like on page one that God has a chamber above the waters and lays, you know, and kind of sets on top of it. His point is is that it's like a tent in which God lays the beams out here is the waters around creation he creates the heavens and the earth and he sits in a tent at the height of the heavens he stretches out a tent to dwell within and lays its beams or its rafters in the waters because it's his chambers they're the upper chambers there's a difference between uh, Hebrew words for chambers and, and upper rooms so uh, Isaiah 40 do you not know have you not heard has it not been told to you from the beginning so he's referencing creation have you not understood since the earth was founded he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its, its peoples are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught, reduces the rules, rulers of this world to nothing. So I just put a little diagram on there uh, of the first three days of creation on the bottom of page two, in which you have the spirit hovering over the waters, and then day one, you have the waters or the mayim, and God creates light within the waters. And then day two, he creates an expanse for that light to dwell within. And, and if you guys are familiar with, with, uh, with uh, um, 
astrophysics and Einstein and, and theory of light and such, that was the big revelation that, that astrophysics was different from Newtonian physics because Newtonian physics, gravity was just kind of this, you know, mythical force that attracted things and light just kind of traveled through space, you know, through nothing. And, uh, and Einstein said, no, that you have this kind of time-space continuum, this kind of fabric that light travels through and across, and things that have mass and density bend that, that time-space continuum, and then things kind of fall into that depression in that continuum. And so it's God created an expanse for light to dwell within and things to function within. I don't understand it, but uh, this is this is how, how the nature of it is. And then he took that expanse and he stretched it out, and then he stretched it out and set up upper chambers in the height of the heavens to rule over creation. And so the main point of this is that God dwells within creation. This is very important. Because how we view God and how we got, view God relating to human beings is one way if God, you know, sits on a throne, a big seat right over the top of the basketball course, court and people are playing below it. It's very different if God sits in a chair, you know, a block away outside of the outside of the stadium you know what I mean it like and the way the game is played and how God interacts with the people involved is very different how you view where God is and therefore how he relates to people I mean it's it's one way and it doesn't diminish his sovereignty or his rulership over creation at all he's still transcendent of it he still has all power over it he still created it he just dwells in it I mean th- this is it's I just because I dwell within my house does not mean my house dominates me and rules over me. You know what I mean? It it, it means I dwell within my house and and I, I am the leader of my house and and I relate to my kids and 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 if I'm never in my house, if I'm always off traveling away somewhere, it it communicates a very different thing to my kids than if I am centered in my home and, and, and establishing justice and righteousness and loving them in the midst of that. Okay, so the only other point I wanted to make was just that the, the Hebrew wordplay, because the heavens are the Shamayim, and they're created in the midst of the waters, which is the Mayim. And so that's the Hebrew wordplay on it, that God creates an expanse, or Akia, within the Mayim and calls that expanse the Shamayim. And he stretches that thing out. And so, again, I just present that to you, that this is the biblical worldview. This is, the, this is kind of the, the, uh, the field that all the players are playing on. And I don't understand it. I call it the, the fishbowl conundrum. Because if you're a fish in a fishbowl, and you're trying to figure out your fishbowl, you know, the sum total of reality that you're swimming around in, it's very difficult when you're inside of it. And you, the, the worst thing you can do is define your fishbowl by your own perception of it. That's the worst thing you can do. And it's one thing if you're like, if the water is perfectly clean and clear and you are, you know, an amazing fish with perfect sight. It's another thing when you're a dying, mostly blind fish in scuzzy green water, and you're trying to figure out what your fishbowl is like. And this is the reality of the human condition, that we peer off into the heavens and we're trying to define our reality and what existence is like, and we're dying and mostly blind and can't see most of what... We can't see anything beyond the speed of light, which is, which is a lot of reality, and we can't... And most of what we can see, we can't interpret hardly at all rightly because we're so dull of heart and and fuzzy of mind and confused most of the time. So, so my point is not that I understand what I just said perfectly. Uh, I, I but I just want to present that that this is me being the mostly blind 
confused fish in scuzzy green waters. I just want to judge my fishbowl by how the scriptures describe the fishbowl. And that's what I'm trying to present to you and would encourage you to, to take that same approach because whatever the Hubble telescope tells you about what your fishbowl is like, I promise you that's not going to be the reality of it when, when, uh, when uh, the Lord descends and uh, exposes the truth. So, page three, we'll just work through a few of the, how the scriptures describe the heavens to give a little bit more clarity and background. So, the heavens are above the earth. Uh, this is so uh, uh, clearly and simple, but this is important that the heavens are positional above the earth below. Uh, Genesis 6.17, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth, destroy all life under the heavens. Deuteronomy 4, acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. And again, every time, every time except six times, which we'll get to in the Old Testament, it's clearly in, in the plural. And it's arbitrary to translate it in the singular. Um, so as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from the heavens and consumed the burnt uh, offering. Isaiah 44, sing for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, O earth beneath. Acts uh, 1, 9 and 10, when he said this, after, and when he had said these things as they were looking up, looking on, he was lifted up, Jesus, in reference to the ascension. And a cloud took him out of their sight while they were gazing into heaven as he went. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, This Jesus who is taken up for you, from you into heaven will come down in the same way. And so this wasn't strange to them. This wasn't uh, Jesus was simply taken up. And uh, in the same way, he'll come back down. The same way Elijah was taken up, he, uh, he too will come back down in Enoch and uh, and uh, this isn't a, a strange experience like Paul had in second uh, Corinthians 12 where uh, he was taken up to the third heavens and I don't know how many heavens there are there are clearly at least three because Paul describes a third one and uh, in Jewish tradition uh, a lot of there's references to seven heavens but I, I don't uh, I don't know about that because none of that ever got canonized. So, um, But clearly there's at least three. If there's a third, there has to be a second and a, and a first. So that's just why I put three H's there. Okay, D, the physicality of the heavens or the substantiality of the heavens. Uh, so the heavens are concrete, substantial, uh, physical. Uh, a friend of mine is really into uh, you know astrophysics and the nature of light and how that thing works and he he he's actually led a number of unbelievers to the Lord just by explaining that God and angels are invisible because they function beyond the speed of light and there's a lot of evidence that light the speed of light is actually decaying it's not just a kooky creationist theory there's and uh, about five years ago, there was a, a big study done uh, uh, by folks at Yale that, that really that the, there's a lot of evidence that the speed of light is actually slowing down. And uh, there's been a lot of research since that. And so if things are beyond the speed of light, they would function and relate uh, differently to us, and we wouldn't be able to see them, though they would be totally as concrete and substantial, even more so uh, than we are. And so he, he had uh, this foreign, he was living with his parents for a few months, and he had this foreign exchange student from Russia who was staying with them, and she was like hardcore atheist. She was, you know, it was her senior year, she had just come over, she was really indoctrinated in naturalism, and, and, uh, and he's explaining this to her, and she's like, so are you telling me that God is more substantial than me? And, and Daniel's like, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. And she goes, I had a dream. She said, last week in my dream, this man comes to me. And she describes Revelation 1, you know, I mean, just to a T. And she says, he was, 
he he oh what did he say? what did he say let me try to remember the story of what he said um he came to me and he said he told me about my mother and then I asked him the whole time I I didn't know who he was and I asked him what about me what about me and he goes oh you have a very interesting life but you don't know me and you won't come to me and she sits there and goes who are you and he reaches out his hand and she touches his hand and it's it's she says in her dream it's harder than granite but it's warm and it's like it's on fire and uh and then she she wakes up from the dream, and so then Daniel is explaining this to her, and and uh, and so she was quickly led to the Lord, obviously, and and uh, this is really a neat story. Anyway, so so the physicality of the heavens, uh, because generally later on, which we'll hit a little bit of of Platonic theory, you have this idea that the heavens are immaterial and, and insubstantial, which is, this just isn't the biblical view at all. So Isaiah 6, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Train of his robe filled the temple, the heavenly tent or temple, which we'll get to in a bit. Uh, he's, above him stood seraphim, one calling to another. So there's a the throne isn't just a metaphor there's actually sound and calling uh, in the heavens the foundation of the thresholds there's actually thresholds there there's a house and one of the seraphim seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the altar and so there's there's actually uh, it's not just language of substantiality there's actually truth to it Daniel 7 I looked and thrones were set in place. And so these are all what's called theophanies or uh, visions or appearances of God as, as assumed as God actually is in which they actually see God. Uh, as I looked, thrones were set in place. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as wool. His hair, his throne, it had wheels. There's a river of fire. There's a court. There's books that are open. So all of these things are described with physicality in the heavens. And then Second Corinthians 12, I, met, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, he's, he's talking about boasting, so he refers to himself in the third person because of the context of the discussion of boasting. So referring to himself, Paul, who was caught up to the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. And so there's, there's not any problem within the biblical worldview to ascend and descend uh, in the body or out of the body uh, because it had happened, obviously, before there's precedent with Elijah and Enoch. And uh, God knows, and I know that this man was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things. So there's... There's, there's a, a paradise, which we'll get to later, later, and he heard things. Okay, so page 4. Uh, Revelation 8, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And so you have time uh, in the heavens. Because of uh, Platonism, you have this idea that there, it's this timeless static uh, reality, which isn't the case at all. There, there's very there's time uh, in uh, in heaven, the heaven of heavens, and you also have trumpets, a golden censer, and an altar. That time might relate differently uh, because of the nature of the expanse and the speed of light and things I don't understand. I haven't been taken up so. Uh, Deuteronomy 10, or point E, there's six times in which you have the, the uh, word for heaven translated in the singular, but all six times it's in context with the plural. And so it's the, it's the uh, Shameh HaShamayim. It's the Shameh, which is the singular heaven of the heavens. And these six times are the only time that it's not in the plural. And so the point is, like Deuteronomy 10, but behold the Lord your God, behold to the Lord your God belong the heavens and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all the hosts in it, etc. And so you have the heaven of the heavens. 
the height of the heavens. And then in the New Testament, you get uh, interchanged heaven and heavens in plural and singular, about 60% singular, 40% plural. But it's not arbitrary. It's not, uh, it gets translated arbitrarily, again, like it uh, in different versions. But it's not arbitrary. But when they're referring to uh, your, like, like the Lord's Prayer, it, the, in the, the Greek it goes, Our Father who art in the heavens, it's in the plural, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven in the singular. And so it's not arbitrary that they do the plural and singular that way. He's enthroned in the height of the heavens. Your will be done with the day of the Lord and the age to come on earth as it is done in heaven, the heaven of heavens. Okay? And so this language is developed out of a worldview of this is the sum total of reality. This is what reality is composed of, the heavens and the earth. God sits enthroned at the height of the heavens, ruling over the earth beneath. Again, I, I don't understand it perfectly, but this is how I read it. So, point F, there's also a temple in the heavens. And so the Lord is, on his holy, the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in uh, the heavens. His eyes see, His eyelids test the children of man. Micah 1, Hear, O peoples, all of you listen, O earth, all you, you all who are in it, that the sovereign Lord may witness against you the Lord from His holy temple. Look, the Lord's coming from His dwelling place, His temple. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. A vision of the day of the Lord. Hebrews 8, so this is the whole discussion in Hebrews 8. It's much simpler if you have understanding of a uh, this way. Uh, now the main point is what, and what has been said is this: We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of Majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Those who offer the gifts according to the law serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he erected, when he was about to erect the tabernacle, do it in the pattern you've seen. And so there is a temple that, a tabernacle and a temple on the earth that is erected as a copy of the pattern of the temple, the tent, erected in the heavens in which the Lord sits uh, enthroned. Okay? And then Revelation 5, After these things I looked, the temple of the tabernacle of... And the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven seals who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, and the temple was filled with smoke and the glory of God. And then finally within that temple there's a throne within the temple in the height of the heavens. Okay? This is, always, this is all very important to understand how things play out uh, in redemptive history and why God commands the Israelites to do things the way they did. So the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord, against his holy one. The Lord enthroned in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Page 5, the Lord has established His throne in the heavens. His kingdom rules over all. Look down from the heavens and see from your lofty throne, holy and glorious, where are your zeal and your might. And then uh, in context to that, you also have powers in the heavens. And so you have powers and principalities, uh, uh, demons and angels involved. Like Isaiah 24, in that day, on the day of the Lord, the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. They will be herded together like prisoners bound in a dungeon. They will be shut up in prison, punished after many days, and the Lord will rule on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against the powers and rulers on the earth who commit injustice against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so there's this idea that there are 
powers in the heavens that drive the powers on the earth. There's kings in the heavens that drive the kings on the earth, so to say. Colossians 1, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And so the things aren't necessarily the heavens and the earth themselves that Paul's talking about, that the, that uh, all things were created in and through him. The things are referencing the powers and the principalities in the heavens and on the earth um, that were created by him and for him, of which he has uh, dominion over. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together which is actually a statement like um, Ephesians 2. All right. So he's basically mimicking the same thing that he says in, uh, in Ephesians 2, where he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, his glorious inheritance like the working when Jesus is raised from the dead, that's our destiny. And God raised him up. It says, verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the age to come. So God raised up Jesus, seated him at his right hand in the height of the heavens. And he has all power and dominion over the powers and principalities in the heavens and on the earth, not only in this age, but also the age to come. And things are held together, uh, were created for Jesus and are held together by him. And so you do, if, if Jesus didn't hold all things together and, uh, he didn't have all dominion in this age and the age to come, then you would have an absolute running amok of the powers in the heavens and would, they would destroy the earth because that's what demons like to do. They hate human beings and they hate God. They would like to destroy his whole creation. But like Job 1, they only do what they're allowed to do and they're, they're, uh, they're hemmed in, so to say, because the whole game is, uh, is the Lord testing the hearts of men before the day of the Lord. And so he set it up this way to do that. So at the bottom of the page, I just give a quote to give you kind of uh, an, an image that uh, I thought was a good synopsis. Older Jewish commentators claim that Moses was shown a material structure actually existing in heaven and that the articles of furniture he made were facsimiles of existing articles in heaven. Archaeological researches in this century have shed new light on Near Eastern thought patterns concerning heavenly-earthly relationships. Behind Exodus 25, says Goppel, stands the ancient Oriental idea of a mythical, analogical relation between the two worlds. And you get a lot of uh, scholarly uh, writing on these kind of... uh, How's Klein... Uh, the two uh, the two uh, oh, I lost it. You get this kind of idea of a two stage uh, view of reality, which is still fairly platonic because it 's not just two stages there's no there's no clear distinction between the first heavens there's no clear distinction between the face of the heavens which is what the panin, which is what the birds fly across, and the heavens in which the moon and the star and the sun are within, and then the heavens in which the demons dwell, and then the heavens in which God dwells. There's no hard distinction between any of these heavens. There's a smoothness to them in which the Lord looks down from His lofty throne upon the earth, and the earth and its men are like grasshoppers. Again, I, I'm, I'm not sure how that plays out, but this is how it's described. And so, <clears throat> you have a uh, relationship between the two worlds, the heavenly and the earthly, the macrocosm and the microcosm, so that lands, rivers, cities, and especially temples have their originals in... Uh, in heaven, although some modern scholarship rejects the concept, 
that the Tabnith model reflects a heavenly reality, there is a wide consensus today that it did in view of current understanding of Near Eastern thought patterns. So you have this idea of a world up here that is replicated in a world down here at creation in which it's not just human beings that are created in the image of God, but you have the earth created in the image of the paradise that God dwells in in the height of the heavens. And the earth is, uh, uh, many refer to the Garden of Eden as the Edenic temple, in which you have a temple complex, because you can, if you study the language of where the river runs out to and where the garden is, it uh, has a lot of similarity of how the temple is patterned. And so you have a, uh, a paradise with a tent and a temple in the height of the heavens and the Lord ruling. And then let us make man in our image and let him rule over the earth in the image of God in a paradise on the earth. And you have this kind of replication idea of not just God and human beings, but the uh, environment as well. All right, big pill to swallow? I understand. So, the, he- the Hellenistic worldview, I'll just do a quick rundown of uh, what the Hellenistic worldview is, which is what is the dominant worldview uh, on the earth today. And it's a consuming worldview. It penetrates other ones and, uh, and changes them which is what it did to Christianity. So uh, the strangeness of the Hellenistic worldview is that it really is, it's just a the way the modern Western worldview has functioned and moved is it's an expression of the darkened heart of man that has become utterly selfish in the way he is and self-centered. And so not only are all of his ambitions and his desires selfish, but he actually starts to shape reality upon himself. And like that fish, dying fish in scuzzy water, he starts to shape his understanding of the fishbowl based on his perception of it. And so um, so this is a progressive anthropocentrism, which anthropocentrism is just a big fancy word for man centeredness okay and so uh, the modern western worldview human beings have always done this but as far as being adopted by uh, groups and peoples as a whole this really started with Plato and uh, and the Greeks and again Hebrew thought versus Greek thought isn't just a bunch of particulars on sacred versus secular and these different kind of products of the two different uh, worldviews. The core of the worldviews is how they interpret the sum total of reality. Okay, so Plato interpreted the sum total of reality as this immaterial reality of forms and ideals. And out of this immaterial reality comes a material reality of copies of those ideal forms. And everything uh, is manifest out of that. So you have chairs, and in the immaterial reality, there's this ideal world of forms in which there's the ideal chair, and then all of the chairs in the material world are copies of those uh, to different corrupt uh, degrees. Some chairs are more ideal than other chairs. And very bad chairs are very corrupted copies of those things. And so uh, Plato had a student. His name was uh, Aristotle. And Aristotle said, I love the famous quote of Aristotle is, I love truth. No, he said, I love Plato, but I love truth even more. And And so he said, no, there's not this ideal realm of, of forms or universals uh, is a, a different frame of the argument they use, of universals that are manifest in the particulars or the copies. He says that's not how existence is. And he gave a lot of reasons for why there's just the particulars. There's just the 
there's just the material reality. There's no immaterial reality behind everything manifesting into the material reality. And so this became the continuum of argument of what is reality over the centuries between Plato and his student Aristotle. And, uh, and Aristotle discipled a young man, uh, Alexander, who the world, of course, calls the great. And Alexander was so enthralled by his teacher. And, of course, it wasn't just, uh, you know, Plato and Aristotle, this isn't, this is a small amount of what all of their writing and teaching was on. But this was the framework for everything. And so, you know, Alexander was primarily, you know, fascinated with Aristotle's, uh, you know, framework for teaching and learning and his, his didactic approach and of observation and deduction, etc. And uh, but everything was viewed out of that worldview. He was really he he was convinced that it was the salvation of the earth, and Greek philosophy was the way the earth would be delivered from its savageness. And so, he sought out to to conquer the earth to establish Greek philosophy across it. And in his ten years of of doing that, and from whatever three. I remember 333 to 323 BC or so, that, uh, that ushered in what history calls the Hellenistic Age. And uh, with that movement, you have this, the argument between Plato and Aristotle really ushered into the whole world. And then when the Roman Empire came in to uh, the equation, it really gave a, a, uh, a context for that to spread like wildfire. So Christianity is born into that um, well, back up, the, he, he established a number of cities called Alexandria after himself. The main city was in northern Egypt, and that Alexandria became the hub of learning and philosophy and education and sophistication in the ancient world. And so uh, Christianity then, there's a school in Alexandria in the 2nd century, late 2nd century, uh, by Clement and Origen, of Alexandria that was designed expressly to integrate uh, Christianity into Greek philosophy, and it was articulated this way, in which uh, in which it really was how can we accommodate Christianity and Greek philosophy? It wasn't like it just kind of happened this way. It was very intentional this way, and so when that happened, you had. Uh, the the Platonic school of thought was uh, primarily adopted, and you had, you know, the visible things incorporated into materiality, and the invisible things incorporated into immateriality, and consolidated so that you have one heaven and one earth, materiality and immateriality. And this is why you have the Western concept of heaven as this floaty, cloudy place of immateriality with no substantiality and and there's really no crossover between materiality and immateriality. And you have a real difficult time with God's sovereignty and rulership over, you know, materiality. And, you know, like that, the old 80s movie or whatever, Ghost, where the, he tries to kick the can. It's really hard for materi- immateriality to rule over materiality because it just, the two don't, the two don't really connect. So um, this became the standard uh, of the view of reality throughout, kind of canonized with the fall of the Roman Empire and the church inheriting uh, the earth at that time. And uh, but then in in the late Middle Ages and the development of medieval scholasticism, you had a real resurgence of Aristotle. And it wasn't really so much a resurgence of Aristotle's. uh, metaphysics and his view of reality as a whole. It was his, the way he approached knowledge of truth. And folks like um, Thomas Aquinas and, and those guys were really hardcore Aristotelians. And then you had the Renaissance in which you had kind of the rediscovering after all of the discovery of the Greco-Roman stuff from the invasion of the Holy Lands and and the conquering of Constantinople, you just had an influx of 
of uh, rediscovery of, of Greco-Roman writings and such. And so you had a renaissance of Greco-Roman culture and lifestyle, which really led to a renaissance of Greek philosophy and thought. And once again, the play between uh, Plato and Aristotle. And the church really likes Plato because it works out better that way to fit God into things. And uh, the unbelievers started to more lean towards church Plato, unbelievers towards Aristotle. And so that's what happened in the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was really just the winning out of Aristotle in which there's really nothing beyond materiality. And if you think there's anything beyond human perception, then you're stupid, which is kind of a strange concept (laughs) since we don't have any control over reality and we're completely bound like grass to the earth to wither away and yet reality is defined by our perception of it. Because this is the point of Greek philosophy, right? It's the perceptual realm and the intelligible realm. Perceived by whom? Human beings, right? (laughs) And uh, it's the, you know, once that played over to the natural and supernatural, as in, in Latin, then that's what the natural realm is. It's what can be perceived, observed, calculated, etc., by human beings. And so, uh, and so in the Enlightenment, because there is so much excess of abuse by the church, um, in the Thirty Years' War, you had the Enlightenment birthed out of that, in which unbelievers were like, listen, you guys can over- argue over your theology and doctrine, just go away. And they went from the beginning of the... 18th century, the 1700s, as a small minority, and then by the end of the 1700s, the unbelievers ruled over Europe. And uh, and you had pretty much a complete cultural shift. And so, um, and so then from there, you have the origination of Darwinism and Freudianism, in which Darwin just gives a... Uh, a uh, he gives a, uh, a validation of the self-origination of the material realm, the origin of species. And so, because it's very hard for, you know, just materiality to originate on its own and life to originate on its own. And then Freud really takes it the step further, and it's the, it's, uh, obviously it's not the particulars of Freud, it's the approach of Freud. Like it's not the particulars of Plato. Nobody believes in an intelligible versus a perceptual realm and all this. But it's the approach to reality that has been inherited and they're become, and they're like, like Alfred Whiteside famously said, all of Western philosophical tradition is like a series of footnotes to Plato. And so he sets the standard for reality, even though people don't believe in the particulars, he sets the standard that's adopted thereafter. And so likewise, Freud was the same way, where he set the standard to the approach of the human being, that the human being is nothing more than materialistic, and his consciousness is simply an interplay of naturalistic, materialistic things going on uh, within him. But that really gave rise to the centering of reality around the individual person and the rise of relativism, that everything is relative, not just to human perception as a whole, but human perception individually. You can't tell me that chair is is maroon. (laughs) You perceive that chair to be maroon. I perceive it, because I'm slightly colorblind, to be kind of brownish, which is kind of the truth. And so, but it's, it's that thing's dependent on mine and your individual perception of reality. It's relative. And therefore, my judgment and my, my interaction with that chair and my decision-making concerning that chair that, or morality is also relevant. And so relativism really rose out of the, uh, out of that, uh, out of the movement of human consciousness to orient reality around himself individually. Uh, Hellenistic or Platonic uh, worldview on the right. And so the question is, is where do you place the things and the players? So if we're talking about the game, the football field, 
this is one view of what the football field is like, and this is the other view of what the football field is like. There's a number of other views, but these are the two common ones, especially as relates to Christianity. Okay, and so uh, the question is, where, how do the players, how are the players involved on these two fields? All right, so where do you put God in the two views of reality? Where do you put the throne of God and Jesus? The devil, angels, and demons. Where do you put stars, sun, the moon, and clouds? Humans. Humans are very complicated because within the Platonic world, they they kind of split between the two because of our nature or whatever. And then Sheol and Gehenna, which we didn't go into at all because we didn't have time. Sheol, they're two totally different things in the scriptures, but they both get translated into English as hell. Okay, Sheol or Hades, the Greek translation, is a holding place within the earth for the dead for the day of judgment. Not a very nice holding place, but it's a holding place. And then Gehenna is a place on the earth after the day of the Lord. It's always eschatological. It's never, ever, ever present. And, uh, and so the two are different. Uh, and so where do you place those two things within the two worldviews? Okay, and then Eden, the tree of life, and paradise. So I, I want to separate those two things out for you, and I just want to challenge you that the Bible never describes reality as material versus immaterial, and never uses the language as natural versus supernatural. It translates uh, a couple words, phusis and phusikos, which is where we get the word English words for physical as natural sometimes, uh, but those that that's always relating to the inherent nature of a thing, the physicality of the thing, the nature of something, natural man or natural wisdom. It's not referring to the metaphysics of reality as a whole, and the concept of supernatural just doesn't exist anywhere. The, 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 there's no Hebrew translation that can even remotely be translated as natural. There, you can translate phusis and phusikos, but the concept of supernatural just doesn't exist in the scriptures at all. It's not even you, you, you can search for it the rest of your life, and it ain't there. And so my challenge to you is not so much that I'm really concerned that you nail down what is and what is not, is that these things play out very directly theologically later on as we draw arrows in time off from these. How do these two views of reality, how do they play out over redemptive history and what are the implications of them? This is what's important. I mean, it's important to be aligned with truth. You know, nobody likes to be in delusion or falsehood. So, uh, you know, I... That's important, but it's really important on understanding how God is, how his nature is, how he relates to humanity. Again, if God is in some distant, ethereal, immaterial reality, and he's like a watchmaker that winds up materiality and sets it spinning while he's off here in this, you know, this static state, timeless, immaterial, and just watching us spin in our lives become a disastrous wreck and people dying and getting crucified financially and everything and it's just like it, it really affects how you view God relating and how you view God interacting with human beings so I always call people to a 30 day supernatural fast that you fast from saying the word supernatural for 30 days and if you try to do that it really just helps you conform your language to the scriptures because my, I found in my life that it, it always comes down to a game of correspondence. And I always judge if I am speaking the truth, if it actually corresponds to the language and I'm inside the passage. If I'm inside the scripture and I'm speaking the same language and, I, and I'm understanding the same thing, and when I comment on it and when I speak about it, I'm talking around the same language. You know, like you'll read, you'll read books and stuff, and they'll quote a passage, and then they'll go into ten pages using completely different language that doesn't correspond at all. Like there's no correspondence between the language, and they're describing this completely other uh, spiritualized reality. And so 
just trying to conform your language to the biblical standard and the language that the Bible uses helps you change how you view things and therefore you end up changing how you view God and how he relates to you and, and kindness, kindness and love and, and mercy. All right. Very well, let's pray. Lord, we just ask you for truth in the inward parts and truth in the mind, that you would conform our mind and our understanding not to the pattern of the world which will vanish and disappear, which changes its understanding about life. Every hundred years, things always change. And so we ask you to conform our minds and renew our minds according to your scripture, Father, that we might know you and understand you and imitate you. In Jesus' name.